Our guest speaker today is a former skeptic. He converted to Christianity when he began studying the evidence behind the claims for Christ. He is an evangelist, he's an apologist, he is a lawyer, and he's also the senior pastor at Champions Crossing Church in the Dallas area. Dr. Frank Harbour has a PhD from Southwestern Seminary. He has a law degree from Texas A&M. He's the president and chief legal counsel for the Institute for Christian Defense, and there they serve to defend the religious liberty of Christians and churches. Frank and his wife, Becky, have four kids. Becky is here with him today, along with their daughter, Hannah, and their son, Graham. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Dr. Frank Harbour. Have you ever heard this phrase, God is taught? Few of you have. That's German for God is dead. It was spoken in 1882 by an atheist named Friedrich Nietzsche. And maybe you've seen the movie, God is not dead. It's based on this statement that was made by Nietzsche 138 years ago. And here's what Nietzsche contended. He said that because of a religious, uh, because of an intellectual movement called the Enlightenment, he was seeing all the European intelligentsia moving away from God and turning to atheism. There's a new book out. It's a Christian book called Dominion. The subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And what's interesting about this Christian book is, is that this book says Nietzsche was right. And you say, well, wait a second. Nietzsche said God is dead, and you have a Christian book saying Nietzsche was right. Well, stay with me for a minute. In this book, the author argues a couple things. Number one, he says there's no doubt that Christianity changed the world. But number two, Friedrich Nietzsche was right. So what was he right about? Well, he certainly wasn't right about God not existing. God's not dead. But Nietzsche said that once people start thinking that God is dead, something starts happening to society, and that's what the author said he's right about. See, here's what Frederick Nietzsche did. He started speaking to all the skeptics and atheists of his day, saying, you guys haven't went far enough. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites, and you're actually deluded. Because Nietzsche said, he said, there's actually atheists during his time that believed in these things. He said there were atheists that confusingly believed in human rights. There were atheists who believed in equal dignity. Uh, there were atheists who believed in the value of the poor. Uh, skeptics who believed that love was a great value. He said there's a lot of shame in that. You should never believe something like that if you don't believe in God. He said many atheists believed that we should forgive our opponents. Many atheists in his day believed in moral absolutes, and many of them shockingly believed that the oppression of the poor was wrong. Now, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, what he argued in God is Dead is this. He said that all of those things are unique to God. All of those things are unique to Christianity. And Nietzsche pointed out, he said, if you look at societies 
uh, before the dawn of Christianity. And like if you looked at the Greeks and the Romans, they would have considered all of these values laughable. He said, look at the shame and honor cultures like the Franks and the Anglo-Saxons and the Germans. He said they would have never subscribed to these types of values. He said it was the impact of the Bible, God, and Christianity that caused these values to be accepted worldwide. Nietzsche said, here's what's going to happen. Because God is dead, people are going to wake up and they're going to realize basically three things. He said, as, as society goes for, forward from the time of the Enlightenment on, he said people are going to realize three things. Number one, he said people are going to wake up and realize that Christians are crazy. He said, yeah, man, y'all are just crazy people. You believe in make-believe stuff, just made-up stuff. But here's step two. One day these atheists are going to, they're going to wake up and they're going to realize, I got my values from a crazy person. Now, Nietzsche said what's going to happen is when they finally connect these dots, what's step three? They're going to give up those values. And Nietzsche said what's going to follow from there is chaos. And let me tell you something, Nietzsche was right. The longer we live in this society, we see that, you know, it is growing increasingly more secular and Atheism is somewhat changing in our world. It's going the way that Nietzsche said. I don't even know the, the modern way to put it, but atheism is really going Cobra Kai. How many of you have seen Karate Kid? Yeah. Or, or maybe you've seen uh, Dodgeball, the Purple Cobras. I don't know. You probably haven't seen anything crazy like that. But anyway, uh, you, you may remember Cobra Kai and Karate Kid. The, the, it's, a, it's kind of a dark side of, of karate. And the sensei says, there is no mercy in this dojo. You know, there is no compassion in this dojo. Well, here's what Nietzsche said. He said, we live in a world that's a dojo. And he said, eventually, people are going to realize there's no place for love in this dojo. There's no place for, for compassion. Um, he said, what's going to happen is, is as society, as Christianity weakens, people are going to abandon Christian values and beliefs. And what that means is that our world is going to be letting go of three things. Love, liberty, and freedom. Now I want to ask you this question today at Second Baptist. Is there anybody here that is ready to let go of any of those things? Me either. So today I want to talk to you about the battle for religious liberty. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Galatians 5.13. And hopefully today, I want to open up your eyes to what is actually going on in our society. I want to give you a different look at things from a perspective of freedom and liberty that maybe that you've never thought of. I want to say, first of all, that before we begin, that I'm so glad to be back at Second Baptist Church, Houston. I want you to know that I love your pastor, Dr. Ed Young, he is, is he the greatest or what? I mean, he's unique. You know, I've spoken at over 600 churches and I, I'm going to tell you, I've never met anybody like him. I don't even know what the word is for him. Legend. I mean, he's just absolutely, 
incredible. He, he blows my mind. But I spoke here about 15 years ago. Uh, as you heard just a moment ago, I was an atheist. I set out to prove that Christianity was not the truth. I think you know what happens to everybody who does that. I ended up uh, converting to Christianity, finding out that there was powerful information from science, history, archaeology, prophecy, many different areas, which demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christianity is the truth. In fact, I believe that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a Christian. I believe that becoming a Christian is one of the most reasonable, intelligent decisions that you can ever make. And I've dedicated my life to helping people understand why Christianity is the truth. I've dedicated my life to helping defend Christianity. And in recent days, I've, I've turned my thoughts toward religious liberty. And a moment ago, you heard something very, very bizarre, very, very strange. They said, you know, Frank is a pastor and an attorney. And some of you look very confused, I know. You know, that's like an oxymoron. Those don't, don't go together. And, and some people say, how does that work? You know, I mean, uh, you know, and well, I'm, I'm actually proud to be a lawyer. You know, lawyers are really good people deep down. You know, that's why there's a law that, you know, all lawyers have to be buried six feet under. Because deep down, we're good people, right? So, but... <laughs> But you know, I was actually going to stop practicing law. This was the year that I was going to just concentrate all my thoughts and uh, abilities on apologetics. And I've got a new book coming out. It's called Prove It. It's on the existence of God. And, and I was like, you know, I'm shutting my law practice down. But then something crazy happened called 2020. How many of you think 2020 might be the most bizarre year that you've ever lived in? I mean, it's, uh, it's been insane. And I've watched my fellow pastors come under attack. Uh, you know, there is a battle now for religious liberty. And it was behind the scenes, and it is coming on like nothing I've ever seen. You know, here in America, there are 10 conservative Christian legal firms. And there was only two in the 80s. There's 10 now. Well, I'll tell you this. As of, as of just a short time ago, there's now 11 because we just started the Institute for Christian Defense, and we are offering legal help to Christians and churches across the country. And I'm excited to be here today to talk about this battle. I know your pastor's preaching different. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I need your prayers, because this, this, this is a new venture for me and my, my family, and I, I so appreciate it. In fact, uh, we have a new website. It's defendingthefaith.law. If you want to go there and read more about uh, what we're doing and, and the, some of the cases that we've, we've just started, uh, st started taking and get our newsletter, all that, that kind of stuff, but we're, we're very, very excited. Well, let's look at God's Word at Galatians 5.13, and I want you to listen very carefully to the first six words of Galatians 5.13. The Bible says, for you were called to freedom. Now, I just want to focus on these six words because I really want this to jump out at you. You may have not really ever thought about this, but God has a divine calling on every single person's life, and that calling is this. He has called you to freedom. You've probably heard it said before that freedom is something that we take for granted. Well, I'm going to tell you, freedom originates with God. Freedom is a calling. See, the Bible says you are called to freedom, and that means you're being called by somebody. 
You're being called by God. You know, the concept of freedom goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When you start looking at the very first man and the very first woman, um, you start to understand something happening very, very quick because what are the first two gifts that God ever gave to man? Well, you know what the first gift is. He got the gift of life. God grabbed some dirt, he breathed into the dirt, breathed the breath of life, and a living soul was formed. But what was the second gift? that God gave to man. This is important, I bet you'll learn something today. One, God gave man life, but the second gift that God gave to man was freedom. Very, very interesting. God's intention for you is that you are a free person. And when you look at the Garden of Eden, this had to be the most liberated, free environment that's ever existed. Think of all the things that they were free from, things that we're not free from today. They were free from disease. You know, there was nobody wearing a mask in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I mean, I, I just look forward to the time that, you know, we don't have to wear masks anymore. I mean, I can't believe it. You know, if you would have shown me a picture years ago saying, you know, a year from now, you'll preach at Second Baptist and everybody in the congregation is going to be wearing a mask. And I'm like, I would have believed a blindfold, but I mean, I'm not sure about a mask. I mean, are you crazy? I mean, you know, what's, what's, what's going on here? The Garden of Eden, it was free from disease. It was free from disaster. It was free from death. You know what I think would have been cool about the Garden of Eden? You could, if you could take a time machine and go back and say, I'd really like to go to the cemetery. Could you show me where the cemetery? There's no cemetery in the Garden of Eden because there was no graves. Nobody had died. They were free from all these things. Now, here's what God said to Adam. And you may have missed this. Uh, Genesis 2.15. I want to read you some very interesting words. And I want something to jump out at you that you may have never perceived. It says, this is in the Garden of Eden. Then the Lord took, the Lord God took the man and he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, and here's the important part, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Everybody say freely. Freely. Now, I'll tell you what, you know, I usually don't tell people to mark in their Bibles and stuff, but if somebody says, man, I think I'm just going to underline one word in my Bible, which one should I underline? This one. That word right there, freely. It is so huge, you can't even imagine. It explains so much of what we see going on in the world, because the first man that God made and he set foot on this planet, God tells him, he says, listen, he said, Adam, you are free and you are free to enjoy your freedom. And you know what that is? That's the pursuit of happiness. When, you, when you're not just free, but you're free to enjoy your freedom. See, don't ever forget that the source of your freedom is not government, it's God. Now, it is. And from that very moment in the Garden of Eden until now, freedom is a divine call in every single person's life. We are so blessed today to live in the United States of America. Over 200 years ago, our founding fathers began what was an experiment called America. And they decided 
that they were living under something that they couldn't tolerate. And they were willing to risk their lives to do something about it. They were living under tyranny. They were living under oppression. They, they did not like taxation without representation. And so they decided, they met together and decided, what we really need is freedom. Nobody said it better than this redheaded guy in 1775. They were having a meeting in a church. It was St. John's uh, Church in Richmond, Virginia. And they were talking about what can we do to get rid of this tyranny? What we need is freedom. And this 39-year-old Christian, he was red-haired, he stood up and he said something that would light the fire of of, of a revolution. His name was Patrick Henry. Do you remember what he said? He said, give me liberty or give me death. And let me tell you something, that resounded with people then. And I'll tell you something, it resounds with people today because we are a people that are called to freedom. You know, you got to understand something. The founding fathers, when they said freedom, they used it different, differently than many people use freedom today because the founding fathers understood something that you and I need to understand today that there is a clear connection between faith and freedom. There's a clear connection between God and government. It was not only necessary, but it was indispensable. And here's the bottom line. Real freedom is given by God. And when you take God away, let me tell you something, freedom is going to go bye-bye. The founding fathers knew this. If you don't take my word for it, take their word for it. I'm going to read from from a little document they wrote. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Declaration of Independence. It says this. You've heard these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator. Oh, wait. They said creator in the Declaration. They might get sued. That might... That might go to the Supreme Court. What what are they thinking? He said, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable. That among these, here they are, there's three of them, three unalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, did you catch those three things? The founding fathers did not just get this out of the air. Because what are the first three gifts that God gave to man? Life. Liberty and the pursuit of liberty, the pursuit of happiness. These founding fathers, they got these things from the book of Genesis. And they said they are so important, they are unalienable. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time that you used unalienable in a sentence? Now be honest. I mean, that's kind of one of those ones. I I dare you to use that word in an ordinary, in just a sentence this week. Just try to use it random. You know, let's say you're walking around here at Second Baptist Houston and you spot Dr. Young and and you just say, hey, pastor, you are unalienable. I triple dog dare you to do it. Um, You know, somebody's going to, you know, but he's a smart guy. He's going to know exactly what what you mean. Here's what unalienable means. Unalienable means that it is not capable of being taken away. See, the reason that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are unalienable is because God gave them. Because God gave them to you, man can't suddenly declare, 
and have a court case that you don't have these things anymore. No, the founding father said, these things are not capable of being taken away because they were endowed by God. This is the job of government, by the way, to protect unalienable rights. You know, if anybody ever says, what's the job of government? That's actually the true job of government because the founding fathers said this. They said, freedom is a gift of God. Now, I know today we're talking about religious freedom, and you may say, oh, that really doesn't concern me. It really doesn't affect my life. Oh, but it does, more than you can ever imagine. And the key to maintaining freedom in a country, in a society, is trust in God. Now, a lot of people would say, that's, that's, that's crazy, Frank. Um, you know, who in the world would believe that? I'll tell you who would believe that. Our founding fathers believed that. If you don't believe me, don't take my word for it. Take their word for it. Listen to this. Thomas Jefferson, and these words are engraved on the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. These are the words of Thomas Jefferson himself. He said, and he was kind of a skeptical guy, wasn't he? Thomas Jefferson said, the God who gave us life gave us liberty. He said, and these liberties are the gift of God. Wow. George Washington said this. He said, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. You know what George Washington believed? He believed if, if you take God out of things, you're going to lose morality. That's exactly what Frederick Nietzsche said. John Adams said this. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, it is wholly inadequate for the, for the government of any other. Isn't that interesting? Because some people say, well, what, what is the original intent? What did the founders mean? What they said was, this, this constitution was made for a religious people. Dwight D. Eisenhower said this. He said, without God, there could be no American form of government, nor an American way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is the first and most basic expression of Americanism. Now, let me tell you what all these leaders understood and believed, and it's very important to grasp, that once God goes in a society or even a life, so does freedom. There's a website called freedomhouse.org, and there it lists countries of the world who are not free. In fact, it gives a list of 49 countries that aren't free. And all of these countries have something very interesting in common. Most of them are atheistic and secular. And you say, well, why is that? Well, let me tell you something. Here's the deal. You got to understand that freedom comes from God. And once someone makes the decision, I'm going to extract God from society, guess what's going to go with it? You got it freedom. So let me tell you something. Anybody who wants to take away God out of society will also be willing to take away your freedom. I hate to tell you this, but this is already here upon us. This is already a major issue in our society. You know, every time you turn on the news right now, presently, every time you turn on the news, what do you see? Have you seen stuff about the Supreme Court? Is that what's the headlines on 
on news channels and on newspapers. And it's all about the Supreme Court. And you, and you know, if you were an alien from another planet and you came here, you would probably say, what's the big deal? What's up about the Supreme Court? Here's what you need to understand. That is where the battle has shifted. Now, I want to just remind you about the battle that's taken place here in the United States of America. Do you know there's been a, a great movement to remove God from our schools in America? And just to prove the point, let me ask you a question. How many of you here went to public school? And, and I know that there's a great school here at Second Baptist. Um, in fact, I'm reading a book. Um, it's called, uh, I think it's called uh, Just, Just One Vote. It's by Ted Cruz. And I'm reading it this week, and I was amazed because he was the valedictorian here at your academy at Second Baptist Houston. I was so impressed. How many of you went to public school and you actually said the Pledge of Allegiance in school? That's a lot of people. Okay, so, and how many of you, by the way, there is a version of the Pledge of Allegiance that doesn't say under God. How many of you said under God like my school? Okay, and let me ask you, did anybody die? when they did that? Did anybody get sick or throw up? Did really bad things happen like the school implode on itself? No. You know, and you know, sometimes when I tell young people, you know, that we used to say the pledge in school, you know, they're just, they just look at me like, you got to be crass. Like, yeah, man, we said it every day in, in homeroom. Um, and not only that, but in universities, there's been a great effort to divorce God from all the major areas, especially science. I mean, you, I, I'll tell you what, you really put your career on the line today in some of these modern universities. If you were to get up and, and start talking about God in these schools, I mean, because God is seen as a, a myth. He's seen as, as something that was for unsophisticated pre-scientific people and that you know, we live in a modern world. We're enlightened people, like Nietzsche said, and we've just moved past all this type of stuff. I mean, if you look around, you know, there's been a great, great movement to ban God from science. Now, if you think about that, that's a very arrogant thing to do, to say, you know, we figured out so much stuff that we just don't need any God stuff in science anymore. But, you know, I don't believe that. You know, when you look at what science really is, science is actually just discovering things that have been here all along. When scientists discover something that is amazing about the cell, you know, the more that we look at the cell, the more we discover it's irreducibly complex and could have never evolved from anything simpler than itself. And yet scientists, when they find a new, look what we discovered. No, you just now, you just now, you know, came online. This has been going on for a long time. Um, you need to understand who made this. You know, isn't that interesting what the founding fathers said? They said, we are endowed by these rights by what? Our creator. Because do you know what, you know what happens when you say creator? That means that everything else is created. Just like when you have a design, you have a designer. When you have a, a sculpture, you have a sculptor. We are God's creation. Now, some people say, well, Frank, let me tell you something. Science has just been coming up with all the answers and we just don't need God anymore. Really? See, because what I've noticed is science can't solve the greatest problem that every one of us have. What is the greatest problem every one of us have? 
it's death. Now, the Bible says that's caused by sin. And the wages of sin is death. But 100% of everybody ever born dies. Now, I'll tell you what, I would really be impressed with science if somebody came and said, Frank, guess what? You know, we're able to bring people back from the dead. This is Ernie. Ernie was dead a whole week and he's back from the dead. Isn't that right, Ernie? Yeah, yeah, I was dead. Would you be, I'd be impressed. I'd be impressed. Or what if somebody had been dead for a year or 12 years or something? I mean, that would be, then we'd have to go, man, science, science is starting to have some answers, isn't it? It, it doesn't have that. It's never going to have that. You know, I was doing a debate one time with an atheist in Kentucky, and he said, you know, Frank, he said, I'm listening to all your stuff. And he said, all this is just your opinion. I was like, well, let me tell you something about my opinion. You need to pay attention to my opinion. My opinion rose again from the dead. What can your opinion do? You know, so I'm telling you, man. So you, you don't have to believe anything I say. I'm not that smart. But I tell you, at the end of the day, I'm going with the guy who rose again from the dead. I'm going with Jesus Christ, the, the, the Son of God. And he's given us a plan, and he's, and, he's, and he's given us a way. Jesus Christ is the one who sets us free. The Bible says that the Son sets you free. You are free indeed. And now this battle has gone to courts. And, you know, it's caused me to rethink my whole life and say, you know, there was a time that I went to law school and I thought, you know, why did I do this? You know, uh, you, you know, because I, I had, I already had a PhD. I'd been a professor at Southwestern Seminary and I, I went to law school late in life and, and I felt like God had called me to do it. And I, you know, I was, I was confused for a, for a while. And uh, it was just this year in 2020, all the things that happened made me finally see clearly in my life, this is why I did that. Um, because, you know, you're, you're probably not aware of it, but in, in court cases across the country, let me tell you something, there are people who have went Cobra Kai. They are trying to sweep the legs out from under us. And I'll tell you this, um, I, I plan to, to do something about it, and I hope you'll, you'll be made aware of it today. I want to close by telling you the story of two cities in the Bible, because we need to take note of this, because there's things happening in our country, and we should be concerned. There's a real price to pay when you start removing God out of public arenas, and the result ends in destruction. Now, I want to tell you a really fascinating story as I close, and I'm really closing, because, you know, sometimes, you know, preachers... Uh, people love it when preachers close. Do you know that? Sometimes people are like, thank God he's done. Oh, wow. And see, I know this. I know this, that it relaxes people when you tell them you're going to close. That's why I close six or seven times, okay? So, yeah. All right. No, this is my one and only true close. So this is really, really fascinating. Did you know in the Bible, and this is a major story in the Bible, there are two cities that appear in the book of Genesis at the beginning, and they reappear at the end of the book of Revelation, and they have different names, but they're the same cities. And the Bible shows us where their names change and what happens. Now, these two cities have two totally different fates, and here's what's interesting about these two cities. These two cities represent our lives, and I will tell you this today. You are one of these two cities. Let me tell you the name of these two cities. One of these cities is named Salem. 
Do you know Salem's a big-time city? And the other is Babel. Now, don't know if you've ever really heard of Salem or thought anything about it. Now, remember, I told you the name of these cities changed. So Salem, its name was changed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay? Now, let me shortcut this story because I can see my time here. I've got 54 seconds, so I've got to make this quick. Okay? It's with the principle of dec- decreasing time consumption. So S- Jerusalem ends up, go to the end of the Bible, the book, end of the book of Revelation. It's the new Jerusalem. It descends out of heaven because guess what um, Jerusalem is? It's, heaven is a location. It's a place. Heaven is a place that you should desire to go. It's a destination. Every person in their life should be concerned about whether or not they're going to go to heaven. So, um, but then there's this other city. It's called Babel. And the word Babel means confusion. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Let me tell you what happened there. This may sound familiar. People in Babel, and it became the city of Babylon, but people in Babel, they tried to build this tower up in opposition to God. They said this, we're not going to have God in our schools anymore. We're not going to have God on our university, and they're using God to to win court cases. They're trying to do, and, and guess what? They succeed, and God comes down, and he strikes them with confusion. Fast forward to the end of the Bible, and we see Babylon the Great, and its end fate is destruction. I will tell you this. Today, I will tell you, choose God, because if you choose God, you choose freedom. You choose to be what God has made you to be, and you will avoid confusion and destruction. I think Billy Graham once said it best. Somebody came up to Billy Graham one time and tried this nonsense on him, and they said, hey, Billy, did you hear? God is dead. Billy Graham coolly replied, I don't think so. I just talked to him this morning. (laughs) Let's talk to him right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that you are a God who is real. We thank you that you do have the answers and that we can talk to you today. And I pray that if there was someone listening to the sound of my voice, I pray that they would place their trust in you, knowing that you are the ultimate opinion, that you are the one who came back from the grave to give us life and liberty. And may we do that so we can begin the pursuit of happiness. I just pray for everybody here today. I pray you would bless them and give them freedom for all time. In Jesus' name.